Hello and welcome to episode 142 of Campbell Conversations with your host, Colin Campbell. In today's conversation, I'm joined by Dr. Stuart McGill. Stu is Professor Emeritus at University of Waterloo for 30 years, a clinician and researcher. As the number one expert on back pain in the world and working with athletes in general population, Stu covers the principles to cover your problems with back pain and sciatica and I could think of nobody better to have this conversation with. Having published over 240 papers, written several books about back pain, I was really privileged to host Stu on the podcast. During the conversation, you can expect to learn from Stu's years of experience to better understand the causes of back pain, whether the physical, psychological, social, and far more. We discuss the common mistakes clinicians and individuals make when it comes to both assessing back pain, but also treating it. The world's continued to evolve and change in the last number of years and during the time that Stu has worked with people and been researching, it's continued to change too. And we explore how the modern lifestyle can actually influence pain or generate further causes of pain. Now naturally this leads to us talking about the sedentary lifestyle which we now lead more of and whether that has more problems for us when we're office based or working at home remotely as well. Having worked with a huge range of athletes across so many different sports, Stu is uniquely placed to comment on the training program structures that we have in place, the back's capacity and the demands that it can handle across time. There's so, so much in this episode and I've made sure to upload the video to Spotify and YouTube so you can go there and check out any of the stages where Stu is giving a more practical demonstration as well as a verbal explanation. In terms of actionable takeaways, there's lots for you to do after listening to this, including reviewing posture, training program structure, lifestyle habits, prehab and rehab, your form and lifting and much, much more. All of the resources that we discussed during this episode are linked in the show notes under the Connect with Stu section. And I'm excited to hear your feedback on what you've learned from a true master of his craft and an expert. Today's podcast sponsor is previous podcast guest, Mike Samuels, better known as the Coffee Shop Copywriter. Mike has been responsible for over $170 million in online sales for his clients and now teaches others to become what he calls coffee shop copywriters too. He's personally guided over 300 people to the point where they're now earning a living as highly paid, highly respected copywriters earning up to £350 per hour and getting paid multiple times per week for one piece of work. Now, it's very important you understand that Mike's clear that copywriting is not an easy way to riches. Rather, it's a skill that requires practice. You'll have heard many times in the podcast now in terms of how we can iterate on how we speak, but also how we write to maximize value. However, Mike has simplified the process and truly believes anyone who has a love for writing and has the drive to earn their living as a writer can do exactly that. To help you, he's put together a selection of free templates to get you started, along with access to a masterclass that shows you how to use these templates and how to find and sign up your first high paying clients. If this is something that interests you and you like the idea of earning a great living from your laptop while mastering an in-demand skill, which clients around the world are paying a lot for in terms of writing, you can head to www.thefreedomkickstarter.com forward slash 500 templates to grab your templates and free class. That'll be linked in the show notes too. And a big thank you to Mike for today's sponsorship. Now, that's quite enough from me. After the music plays, you're going to hear the wise and wonderful Dr. Stu McGill. Welcome back. Today's conversation, we are diving into the massive subject of 
back pain. And to do so, I've gone and got an expert in that space, and that is Dr. Stuart McGill. Stu, thank you for joining me. Good morning uh, from me, Colin, but I think it's later afternoon for you. Are you based in Glasgow? Yes, that's correct. Glasgow, fantastic, Scotland. fantastic. Okay. Home of my favorite comedian, Billy Connolly. <laughs> yes, we were, we, were, we were laughing beforehand. If you, if, you, if you swear anywhere near as much as Billy, then we'll, we'll maybe have to put an explicit warning on this podcast. Oh, a wee little sweary. <laughs> <laughs> he's a brilliant comedian, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's pretty timeless across the generations too, because like my generation love him as much as like my parents' generation as well. Oh, for sure, absolutely. He was he was brilliant, and uh, I, I he was one of those people that you wish you could have met in real life. Yeah, exactly that, exactly that. But Stu, speaking of people that um, I wish we'd met in real life, you and I would have loved to do this podcast in person, but the wonders of technology have allowed us to connect across the, the world to bring this episode to the listeners' ears. And when I've heard you speak before, you've often said that all back pain has a cause. How do you start to understand what this cause might be? Well, first of all, I realize that to some people that can sound controversial. Uh, but yet on the other, you know, have you ever heard anyone receiving a diagnosis, oh, you've got nonspecific leg pain or you've got nonspecific head pain? Those diagnoses don't exist. And yet in medical school, the term is discussed, uh, that patient there has nonspecific back pain. And it's because they haven't had uh, an assessment that revealed the specificity to their uh, pain triggers. So now that we've got that out of the way, um, it's probably important for me to describe how I came upon this process of very specific back pain. The body obviously is a, uh, a system, a very complex system, but I came at it not as a medic, but as a systems engineer. We're going to probe and troubleshoot a very complex system to find out what is causing uh, pain. So we started, uh, I began from scratch the uh, experimental research clinic at the university. I didn't have to follow a medical model. So I said, what makes the most sense to probe this complex system? So I set aside two hours and the medics said, two hours, what are you going to do with a patient for two hours? And I said, well, we're going to start asking them, tell us your story. Well, what, you're, you're going to listen to them? Tell you? And I said, yes, I have to understand the impediments that caused them not to do well with previous clini clinical interventions. I have to understand the pressures of their family and their job that they have to continue to do to bring home the, the groceries, uh, et cetera. I have to understand their habits. Uh, what is it that's causing them not to desensitize the pain, not to cause tissue adaptation, but in fact, to do the opposite, to thwart um, the, the rehabilitative uh, uh, process. So I just, I just say, tell me why you're here. Tell me your story. Some don't even mention their back pain, Colin. You wouldn't believe it. And then others go into a long diatribe that they've learned from Google. And then I can point out some of the things that uh, they are very surprised to find out. But nonetheless, after 
the first year or two, I changed that two-hour appointment into a three-hour. Now, this was unheard of, and we had zero pressure at the university to see so many patients per day to, to create funding. I was free of all of that. I just said, what's the best approach? And uh, once we listened to their story, we would then design provocative tests to probe the mechanism that we would then hypothesizes their pain mechanism and prove it. And uh, it might be that they're sitting slouched like this. Maybe they have a disc bulge and this posture causes their big right toe to fall asleep and cause some back pain. And yet when we show them when they sit upright, their toe stops buzzing. And uh, right away, we've, we've given them an antidote. And then I'll say, stand up, observe, right into the pain and I stand up versus yeah. showing them spread your knees apart, get your feet underneath you, suck up a little bit of air. Do you see how I just moved away from my pain? Lean yes. forward through my hips and pull my hips through. Oh, that didn't cause pain. So now we just got into a psychological empowerment. They suddenly learned the specificity of what's causing their pain and a specific tactic or antidote to do what they want to do without causing the pain. So psychologically, that was uh, very, very uh, powerful for them. The and... work environment, Stu, is, is vital there as well, isn't it? Because like you say, beforehand, during the story that they've given you, it's either really lengthy and lots of different quotes or diagnosis that they've learned from Google or maybe a previously failed diagnosis from a practitioner they've been to see before you. Or they tell you nothing at all, but they just know that they get a pain when certain things happen. So by you identifying maybe what the triggers are or what part of their back starts to get sore, why and when, and then the most important thing there was giving them some sort of actionable takeaway where you say, well, actually, if you stand up or you sit like this, you may find that you relieve those symptoms that have been crippling you for however long it was before they before they started speaking to you. Yeah, that, that's that's a nice summary. And I should probably conclude this whole uh, topic area by saying we can't capitulate to giving a back pain sufferer this diagnosis. You've got nonspecific back pain. We have to keep striving to make the pain specific for the patient. Because consider this. If you walk around and get dressed and go to work and conduct your daily business and all day long, there's a little man that unbeknownst to you and at any random time of the day can slam a knife in your back. That's what causes PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. How many back-pained people have this fear of the unknown? When is that bogeyman going to come out and slam a knife in my back? So you see how important it is once they become empowered, that bogeyman, that person who slams the knife in their back, transforms into a tutor. And the next time they have back pain, we coach them to say, ah, what did you just do? Well, I rolled over in bed like this and I triggered pain or I got out of chair or I reached forward and flushed the toilet. Okay, we gave you a strategy. Remember it now and Go down and play cricket, put your hands on your knees, uh, flush the toilet, pull your hips through, and now relax. You don't need the control anymore. And end 
on a positive winning note. So important. So that's my message to the uh, medics and the trainers. Empower the patient and stop this needless PTSD. But on the other side, us, you, me, and clinicians, it is a lifelong journey to keep building, <clears throat> excuse me, on this idea of mastery. We owe it to the patients, keep building our understanding of what causes their pain and ways to uh, mitigate it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've been working on this for 30 years. Uh, I think I'm still getting better at it. Yeah, so, I, 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 I have tremendous respects to that you just continue to double down and push forward with your craft and become like a true master of it. And that's a term that the gentleman that introduced as Yusuf Smith uses a lot, like a master of their craft. And it does seem very rare these days that we have somebody who's just so committed to one particular area and they double down in the niche and they, they improve their form and their reps, if you were to use a gym analogy. And eventually they just have a position where, yes, they are still learning. As you've said there, you are still grooving down and improving, but you are very much at a level where there's not many things that you haven't seen by now. And you've got ideas and approaches that will deal with all these different situations that you come up against. I, I'm not going to add to that. <laughs> Perfect. I've, I've, man I've managed to, uh, to summarize nicely. Um, you said you've been in the game for, for over 30 years too. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, what have you seen change over that period in terms of some of the causes of back pain that are coming in to see you in terms of maybe like lifestyle or habits or nutrition or whatever it is that um, maybe you're seeing more and more of? Yeah, it, I hate to say it, Colin. It's closer to 40 years that I've been working on this now. Um, changes? Well, when I first started 40 years ago, um, if you were a patient going to see a physical therapist for back pain, they probably would have told you to do the pelvic tilt. We were in this pelvic tilt area. You tuck your pelvis underneath and flatten your low back. And this was uh, given out universally. If you had nonspecific back pain, do the pelvic tilt. So it was an era that we went through. And of course, our investigations and probing of this in the clinic and laboratory, it, it didn't make sense to us. That might help some people. It might hurt the rest. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, then we went into... Um, uh, let's see now, uh, directional therapy. So if flexion caused your back pain, don't do flexion, just do extension. Well, when we measured that, that wasn't always the best idea over the long term um, either. Uh, then we went into exercise doesn't matter, just exercise. In other words, if you have back pain, do a few deadlifts. And, and, and again, if the person had, say, an end plate fracture, you just mimicked the injury and pain mechanism with that particular exercise. So something else would uh, be appropriate. So my, my point is we go through these uh, eras and the current era that we're in now, well, I mean, with the internet, there's, there's every era you can uh, possibly uh, think of. But there's some fun little wisdoms. I heard uh, there's a trainer in the US called John Rusin and uh, he put a quote uh, on the uh, internet, uh, the 20 year olds should be training like 40 year olds, not the other way around. 
Okay. And the more I thought about that, I thought there's a bit of wisdom uh, there. But uh, anyway, what's changed? Uh, I hope we are slowly converging on this commitment to better understand the full pathway to pain in this complex system. And if we can get a handle on the subcategory of that person's pain, uh, address it appropriately. Yeah, and I think you achieve that with three-hour assessments because you get into every different facet of that person's life that could accumulate and add up to pain because I suppose one of the challenges we maybe have in the healthcare system in this country is that the doctors and the clinicians and the assessments are so time pressured that they maybe don't have the time to get into the factors that maybe you would assess Stuart and get a better understanding of what might be driving the buildup of pain for within a person. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have several thoughts that go through my mind when I listen to that. And, you know, there are many flavors and trainings of uh, clinicians. And in the Western healthcare system, a clinician provides the treatment that they're trained in and can bill for. So if you are an expert in manipulation, you give manipulation to every uh, back pain person that uh, comes in. And uh, what we've been trying to do is train clinicians to have a full skill set so that uh, once the pain pathway is recognized, they have a tool in their toolbox to number one, wind down the pain by not triggering it. And the analogy I might use there is stubbing your toe. If you stubbed your toe once, it, it gets a bit sore. But if you continue to stub it over and over again, it becomes so sensitized that if you lightly touch your toe, you scream. Well, there are many back pained people who will come here with highly sensitized backs because of their unawareness in that they are many acute attacks on their spine all day long or associated tissues, whatever they happen to be. And when you point that out to them, uh, you now are well on your way of uh, mitigating and winding down that pain. And, and if I use the word stress concentration, so in a mechanical sense, if I, uh, let's see now, had a facet joint and I kept going into extension more back pain, more McKenzie prone push-ups, more sensitization of that particular uh, pathway that's creating a stress concentration. And when we measured all this pattern of stress concentration 30 years ago, we realized that the pain is not always, but very highly correlated with the stress concentration. Some people take this as a mechanical approach, but wait a second. Let's give them a stress concentration, a psychological stress concentration, or a sociological stress concentration. I'll say, we know that if you sit in front of the computer for 20 minutes, that winds up your back pain. But if you go for a walk for 20 minutes, it takes the pain away because we've reduced the stress off the posterior part of the disc that we've proven is your pain mechanism. Go for a walk four times a day and reduce that mechanical stress concentration. And then they'll say, I can't go for a walk after dinner outside. And I'll say, 
oh, tell me. And they'll say, my neighborhood isn't safe. Ah, we have a stress concentration from a sociological milieu. So do you see when I use the word stress concentration, it's the stress concentrations that attribute a lot to the various aspects of their back pain. And some people hear that and they think mechanics. Well, it is mechanics, but it also could be psychological, sociological, physiological, endocrinological, uh, cardiovascular, you name it. I love so, the I love the variety of things term. you need to consider. Yeah, the, the number yeah. of different things that need to come underneath that stress bracket. And that's such a good point where, albeit you've prescribed to the patient that they should walk four times a day, but their fourth walk is not something they adhere to because yes. from a, a societal factor, they don't feel safe to go outside at that particular time of night in the neighborhood that they live. And instead, they might spend that 20 minutes, like you said, Instead of their walk after dinner, they sit down for 20 minutes and best believe that compounds upon the back pain that they Bingo. are suffering from. Bingo. You've hit the nail on the head. So they will forgo that uh, fourth walk and now they sit on the reclining chair in front of the television. The assessment showed they had sciatic nerve tension. Stretching out the knee might give them a bit of a feeling of relief, not realizing that they are now increasing the sensitivity of the sciatic nerve, which is accounting for their numb toes, as just an example. So uh, you, you hit the nail on the head. They just performed a self-defeating behavior to get the adaptations to work towards more pain unbeknownst to them. And it was only the minor error of making a mistake of one of the walks out of the four. That's how specific these things uh, can be. Yeah, it's it's very, very interesting. And it's important you bring up that example between sitting and walking, because in the modern age that we live in, we walk much less than we would have done than our ancestors or even our older relatives in, in, in the modern age that we live in. Like in my day job, I work from home pretty much all the time unless I'm out seeing clients. Now, if I didn't make a conscious effort to walk, my step count would be negligible apart from walking to the car to then drive to the gym and train. So my actual non-formal movement would be so, so low and my time spent at the desk could be endless. Like today is such a busy day and you may actually see that uh, for those watching on YouTube, I am standing during this podcast with, 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 with Stu and I do try and stand for certain periods of my day during my Zoom calls with clients because I bring slightly better energy, but also from a back health perspective, touch wood, I've not had significant problems with my back throughout my lifetime, but I am doing some of the preventative work in advance of that. So I do think that the modern age where we are sitting for such long periods and there's no informal movement built in, no wonder we're perhaps seeing more people struggling with their backs than ever before, Stu, because you've said the difference there between sitting and standing can be colossal. It is. I retired from the university, uh, it's unbelievable now, but that was seven years ago. When I started as a professor in 1986, computers hadn't been invented yet. We didn't have computers in the laboratory. It was a job where I would walk around. I'd walk around the clinic and the lab and uh, you know, I'd walk to meetings, and etc. And then I trained every uh, lunchtime. Over the time, computers, uh, particularly personal computers, became much more prevalent. I began to sit more. In my last few years at the university, 
my office hours, where office hours, when students would come for office hours and we'd discuss concepts, we were standing up on chairs and landing on the floor and creating storage and recovery of elastic energy and proving the principles to them through demonstrations. But then it got to the point where they said, oh, sir, couldn't, I, uh, couldn't we meet on Zoom? for our office hours. And I said, no, <laughs> you get down here and we're going to have a physical time and you are going to feel in your body the answers to the questions. And uh, anyway, uh, department meetings, meetings around the world. I know we're, we're doing this through the internet today and you're standing and stupid me is sitting. I should probably stand for a little while. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the, the, the point in all of this is my health was suffering. Uh, we know cardiovascular health, musculoskeletal health, psychological health all require good movement throughout the day. And the longer you sit, the greater the compromise on your health. That was not the only reason, but a very primary driver for me to say, okay, at this stage in my life, I don't need this anymore. And I'm just going to, I'll see a few patients at BackFit Pro HQ as, I, as I'm doing here and talk to uh, wonderful young probing minds like yourself. And, and that will be it. That's good enough. And I, I, every day I split my firewood. I grow a few vegetables. I go out for a canoe or a ski or a, you know, a kayak or walk my dog. It, it's a wonderful life. And Colin, I feel fabulous. I don't have any pain. So uh, that is probably a real statement on how the modern life, you, you have to combat it. Otherwise, it will suck you into this ill health. Yeah, particularly because you lived through a period where it was much more encouraged to be on your feet and moving around, even in a job that was academic and like a... No, it wasn't exactly a manual labor job that you're doing. You weren't chopping firewood, etc., all the time, or down the down the mines mining. You were teaching and coaching and mentoring and whatever else. And there was a a movement part to that, but then that was filtered out by the technology that we have, which, albeit, is fantastic and it allows conversations less. We must always pay it pay its dues, but it re it reduced your informal movement time so much down that you actually started to develop more challenging symptoms on the fact that you were sat behind a desk at all times doing that and if you look at how the modern world is now you really have to make an active movement away from that to achieve like what would be considered normal 20 30 40 years ago in terms of movement yep 100 uh, percent. so stress is good stress is anabolic stress is toughening up to a tipping point and when you cross the tipping point, now it becomes catabolic and it disrupts the natural adaptations and this drive for your, of your body to regenerate. But when you cross the tipping point, you degenerate. And uh, it, 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 it's a commitment every day to work up to the, the tipping point and... Uh, do everything you can do to to regenerate uh and and this system this complex system that i that i talk about from uh, you know think of every possible system in your body it every one of them has a tipping point every one of them thrives on stress up to a point and uh 
our job is to manage that. Yeah, <coughs> undoubtedly. Um, in the age that we live in, a lot of people that listen to podcasts like this will be very interested in like their sports performance and how they train. But importantly, there's the challenge of if you live a very sedentary life in your office job or your desk job from nine till five, and then you're either training really hard before work, say 6 a.m. to 7 a.m., or you're training really hard after work, are you exposing yourself to a greater chance of injury by living this kind of dual life through intense short bouts of exercise at either end of long periods of sitting? Well, I think the literature would suggest very much so. Uh, your natural physiology thrives, and I'm not the world's expert on this at all, but on many uh, short bouts of activity throughout the day. And can you make up for it, I think is the question. If you have a sedentary job and then you go to the gym at night and, and you really have a good uh, blowout. Um, I see a disproportionate number of clients and patients here because of the over sedentariness of their eight to 10 hours a day and their over physicality in that one hour uh, a day. And there's many wheels in motion in that uh, particular thought pattern. One might be that uh, okay, we're all interested in bodybuilding and looking good and that kind of thing. But you'll notice that the bodybuilder trains very differently from the highly successful powerlifter who's a strength athlete. The bodybuilder typically will train a body part three times a week. So you stress the body part, you take a day off, and you stress it again on the third day because the goal is to hypertrophy muscle. So that's a pretty good plan to tear down muscle, give a day off and get it to grow. However, uh, a strength athlete needs to build structure in their body to support massive loads. So, you know, when we take someone like Brian Carroll, who's, who's squatted over 1300 pounds now, he would do heavy squats once per week. And people would think, oh, that fellow's uh, undertrained, not realizing that when you study the patterns of the world's strongest men and women, um, you know, they don't do a lot of bending exercise. They, they, they do have difficulty in a mobility point of view. It's very difficult for them to scratch their ear and tie their shoe and this kind of thing because of the stiffness that they've had to build to lift over a thousand pounds. Um, but when I look at their spines in a, uh, an MRI, as an example, uh, a radiologist who's never seen them will write on the report, oh, they've got sclerotic end plates. And I will look at that and say, actually not. They are a champion powerlifter and they have adapted the bone through microfracture. Now, that's a good thing, microfracture. It is breaking down at the osteon level, the bone cell level, uh, and, and a very, very small microfracture. And then the bodybuilder adds to that microfracture in two days. They add a little bit more and a little bit more, and a little bit more. So now we're talking to your listenership who think it's a good idea to do heavy deadlifts three times a week. 
But when we watch Brian Carroll train or Ed Cohn or, you know, some uh, these highly successful strong men and women, when you get a micro fracture, bone adapts through what's called the piezoelectric process. So if I took, a, and I don't know if you want to get into this level. Yeah, of let's go there, Stu. I'm up for okay. it. Okay. So bone, people wonder, well, how does the body figure out where to lay down bone and make it stronger? Because your bones are changing all the time based on what side of the tipping point you're on. Are you building cumulative micro damage or are you building more robust bone? If I took a quartz crystal and I rubbed two together like this and it was dark, you would see a lightning flash go through the quartz. In other words, when you bend the crystal, it creates an electric charge. That's a piezoelectric material. Remember Star Trek and the lithium crystals and Scotty would say, oh, Captain, the lithium crystals won't take it, you know, uh, because lithium crystals is a highly piezoelectric material. So your bone builds up an electrical charge at the region of highest stress concentration. Bingo, that stress concentration came back again. Now, what that does is that electric charge attracts the free ions in the plasma of calcium, magnesium, the metals and salts that then build bone and bind on to bone at the region of highest piezoelectric charge highest stress concentration. So it lays down bone. But if I then train in two days, those bonds are not very strong yet and they break off. So now I've just increased more microfracture versus if I waited five days, I've just built heavier bone that's robust. And now I do it again. So I know it's a long-winded answer and it's not an obtuse answer. I'm trying to get at the answer that uh, the question that you asked me of the warriors who we love, they go to the gym every night, not realizing that they have to manage that biological tipping point, but it's exercise specific. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I go back to, you know, it's in the back of my head column. I'm, I'm talking to Stu 45 years ago, 47 years ago. I was 19. I was doing power cleans because I was an American football player. Yep. Uh, doing heavy power cleans, sets of 10 of 225 pounds. So 100 kilos, sets of 10, over and over again, just beating myself into the ground, doing that three times a week until I had a... Uh, an end plate fracture, and then I got a herniated disc. You know, I, I really earned that one. And would I have changed had someone else coached me better? Probably. A, a good coach is very, very powerful, but I didn't have one. I, I had Arnold on the wall, Dave Draper, and a few of these bodybuilders, but no strength athletes. Yes. And, uh, you know, um, so... That advice should give people a lot of consideration for their training program, because as you've said, there is very different if you were to break down the muscle in a particular way with from a hypertrophy perspective and then go again two to three days later versus breaking down these parts of your body with super heavy, hard weight, low reps, intensity, and doing it across a much longer time frame, like you say, four or five days um, or one, one, once a week when we're talking about really, really top performing powerlifters. Um, how does that differ in terms of like personality types as well? Because I think a lot of the people that listen to a self-development podcast like this one are 
type A, they're very much do, do, do. So hearing that sort of advice can sometimes be difficult for them to take on board. And like, I know for me, being told to do less or to ease off is a, is, a, is, a, is a difficult message for me to take unless it comes from somebody who gives me really good reason to do so, like yourselves do. You can reassure me that actually doing less will enable you to do more in the future. If you would permit me, I'm going to tell two stories. And one is going to be of a younger Stu, and one is going to be of the current Stu, say 45 years later. I'm like you. I'm a type A go-getter. I want the best. I'm going to work myself to achieve the best. And that is the hallmark of the people who are going to listen to someone like yourself. They attend CrossFit. It, it, you know, all of these personal challenges, achieving personal bests, it, 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 it's, a, it's a wonderful social place to go, CrossFit, isn't it? The negative naysayers don't go to CrossFit. Instead, they're all encouraging one another. However, uh, there is a, th this biological tipping point, and uh, staying under it is, is a key, no question. If I could go back to my former self, I gave you the example of doing power cleans, yeah. not understanding the mechanism enough to say, I'm really trying to become an explosive power speed athlete. I'm not trying to become a slow, strong athlete. Speed, speed, speed is explosiveness. I would have been so much better doing sets of three never do a set of 10 to fatigue and, and not only break form, which added more stress concentrations, bingo, uh, but uh, it would have neurologically, uh, through, through the plasticity of neurology, which are both the combination of the nerve plus the thought pattern, plus the muscle's response to create more fast twitch responses. The, the body will adapt to that. That's what I was really trying to do, not realizing that I was actually doing the opposite and becoming a fatigable, stress-concentrated uh, individual. So, you know, it was maybe the right exercise, but I went to the point where I broke form and I actually countered the objective by the wrong dose and the wrong application of it okay a bingo you just said it perfectly that's what i was heading to the exercise was right the dose and the programming was entirely inappropriate now uh i'm middle 60s i'm doing pretty well i've had hip replacement uh probably from being inappropriate when I was uh, younger, but a, a lot of guys, you, you, you watch your crowd when, when they hit their sixties, guess who's in the orthopedic surgeons waiting room, the, the ones who rusted out and the ones who wore out the middle of the road, aren't there. You'll, you'll find, you'll come to learn this. Uh, but now, uh, the week has seven days, two days a week. I strength train two days a week. I work on mobility. So I broke C4. I've had low back issues. I'm hip replaced. I've broken my hands, my ribs, uh, my collarbone. Uh, you know, I've got some miles on my body. So I have to work on mobility, but I can't work on mobility every day. That will hurt me. Two days a week, I make sure I do strategic mobility. Two days a week, I work on something for my ticker, something cardiovascular. Now, if I split firewood, 
I've, I've checked all three. But if I haven't, I better go for a bike ride. It's a nice summer day today, or it's minus 40 outside. I better go for a good ski, whatever. So my point is I've now built in a stimulating stressor, but always under the tipping point. And I never do the same activity two days. So if I'm splitting my firewood for, for next winter, I don't do it two days in a row. I take a day off. Now, that's six days a week. The seventh day, I uh, don't do anything. That is so critical as the adaptation day just to allow the stress concentrations to relieve a little bit. And um, it, 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 I don't know if I was going to say it breaks my heart that, that that's, it does. It concerns me when I'll see a young person on the internet, here's my training Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And on Sunday it was my day off. So I only ran 8k and I think, Oh, active so recovery day. Yeah. Lost. It's very popular, it, isn't it? Yes. And trust me on this that one day a week, don't do anything. You will have less pain. You will be a better athlete, um, uh, et cetera. So, uh, you know, I think of why do people come here? It's because they don't rest enough and they have stress concentrations in every system of their body now that we've better defined that a little bit. And it's a matter of recognizing those and addressing them. Yeah, taking into account different personality types, different training methodologies, different movements and dosages is 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 absolutely vital. And um, if I'm thinking day to day, what does good posture look like? What a huge question. I'm going to take two sides of the coin on this. R recall the tipping point. If I'm below the tipping point, I'm building my body. So if I sit and slouch for a while and I put my feet up on the exam table all of those things you could say well that's sloppy posture but that's fine as long as I remain under the tipping point but if I add load to poor posture now we're increasing the stress concentrations closer to the tipping point so one of the rules of thumb is if you're doing something that's out of position we're playing jujitsu which is the whole game is to get your partner out of position and add a tiny bit of load so they submit. If you have to add a lot of load, you're a poor jujitsu practitioner. If you roll with one of the Gracies who invented Brazilian jujitsu, you will find very quickly that if they have to use high load, they abandon the maneuver. It's poor technique and they come in as a boa constrictor from a different angle put you in a very compromised poor posture and add just a tiny bit of load and you're tapping like a baby if you don't you will tear you cross the tipping point so there's a little bit of a thought poor posture is okay and in fact you may want to depending on the mechanism uh if you've got an open fissure disc bulge don't go there that will just perpetuate the time it's going to take to stiffen up and uh, heal. However, so you get my point, and a lot of people say, well, McGill's this posture Nazi, uh, never go to poor posture. It all depends on the person. Now, having said that, what is poor posture? Because I, I, I have to add some scientific principles. Holding a body part against gravity 
is a form of poor posture. If you ask me to hold a pound of butter in my hand, all day long, I'm going to walk around holding the pound of butter. Yep. All day long. Now, what can you predict will be the state of my bicep at the end of the day? It's going to be fatigued. It's going to be fatigued and highly painful. The Cinderella motor units, the ones that came on first in a very low grade contraction, will be screaming by the end of the day. Not the fast twitch fibers. Uh, now, here's the person who comes in to the clinic all day long and they say, well, I've got a muscular ache right here. Okay, pull your hips forward, suck a little bit of air, and I might have to do a thoracic spine extension or something like that. And then I'll say, look in the mirror, and they're a couple of inches taller, and their wife or husband will comment that they actually look a, a few years younger. And then uh, they'll say, oh, doc, you're magical. You just took my back pain away. And I said, I'm not magical. All I did was take away the stress concentration of you holding a body part for a long period of time against gravity. So there is a formal uh, definition. Um, or... Uh, think of the times in different occupations where I might be in a repetitive assembly task or whatever. It's context specific where that poor posture, if, if the load is small, then the duration and the repetition is important. If the load is high, the posture is now important. So if they have uh, pain that recurs in... Uh, uh, deadlifting, and we show them um, they are able to mitigate their specific stress concentration by taking a bar, yep. and the drill is now push the bar away, anti-shrug, push it down, and take the bar and now bend it like this. Yep. I'm bending the bar. Now, feel what happens. I bend the bar. My, my chest raises a little bit. I've pulled my shoulders down the lats are pulling down into the back pocket as a coaching cue yeah i slide the bar down to the knees and i pull my hips through and then they will say you know what you just took my pain away all right that was bad posture for them is it appropriate for the next person that comes in maybe yes maybe no but that's what the assessment shows so we start out with general principles like load and stress comes from magnitude, duration, repetition. It's mitigated by rest and stay below the tipping point. Don't hold things against gravity for a long period of time, or you might want to for a while. If you are, I had an Olympic sailor the other day and they hike out in uh, holding that stress concentration. Yeah. Yes. So guess what they're training? that particular poor posture, uh, but don't cross the tipping point. And we figure out what the pain mechanism, we build some robustness and get them back uh, once again. But um, uh, anyway, it, it, it's, it's complicated and poor posture is person specific, but there's a few guidelines on how we will converge on giving that person really helpful strategy for me because i think um one of the examples i would give and you were talking about something that you would do frequently that would add up over time that was relatively light load you see people reach with their right hand for their mouse constantly all day with their shoulder rounded forward meaning they slump more often perhaps their keyboard is more out of reach so they create this slumped forward shoulders rounded position as well again putting pressure on their back um 
on a on, on a kind of uh, opposite level you talked about deadlifts you could do the leg press you see people's lower back come off the pad for them to hit depth or what they deem as correct depth on a leg press so that's like the opposite where you've got really heavy um in like a short period of time and putting you in bad posture and then you've got the kind of working example where you're building up repetitive strain for a long periods of your day weeks hours hours across your lifetime where you're creating poor posture so at some point if you cross the tipping point these are going to generate pain aren't they yeah you, you, again you you summarize so well colin yeah if you cross the tipping point you pain is there for a reason once pain starts to what's the bat's capacity for recovery it depends on what the mechanism of pain is many people misinterpret the pain as muscular backache um and then they think ah i'm going to treat it as muscular backache and then they find out later damn i've got a disc bulge uh and the treatment for the muscular backache was actually contributing to the uh eventual uh disc bulge so once again it's very important to get a proper a good a thorough understanding of what that pain mechanism is and now they have some precision on a how to wind it down and b once it's wound down can you adapt in your body a base athleticism to start slowly and accomplishing those things pain-free and build it all back up again so you know i wrote the book uh gift of injury with brian carroll Brian came to me. He'd already had um, uh, squat records, world squat records in two different weight categories. But he came to me and uh, he, he was in constant pain. Uh, and, you know, I asked him to bend over and I was just tricking him into movement to tie his shoes and things like this. And here's the world champion squatter who'd forgotten how to squat to uh, pick up his uh, backpack that he, he left on the uh, clinic floor. And I pointed out some of these things. And I think my first session with him was four or five hours long. But by the end of those four, four or five hours, the psychology just changed. Instead of him being disgusted with himself, being in pain, why can't I beat this? He suddenly became empowered. And and, and the, the beautiful thing about an athlete like Brian was he humbled himself right back. He said, you know, holy smokes, I, I, I forgot. Pain has so corrupted my, my athleticism. And uh, very, very quickly humbled himself back to, yeah, I'm going to brush my teeth with a world-class deadlift pull. Yes. And then, you know, pull my hips through. Gosh, I just did that with no pain. I don't have chronic back pain. McGill showed me I have many acute, <clears throat> excuse me, episodes all day long. And if I just stop those acute episodes, I wind it all down. Then we got him to interval walking. Walking. To stand on one leg and do a knee circle, I had to build the obliques. I had to engage quadratus lumborum. Uh, I had to engage latissimus dorsi. And then to take a power lifter who is so naturally overdeveloped and stiffened in their shoulders. So when they walk, walking is a problem for them. 
They're too stiff. The stress goes to their lower back. But if I can detrain their upper body for a while, and remember, Brian took a year to get rid of his pain yep. and then get more laxity going in the shoulders, which is counter to what he had developed to become a world champion power lifter. In other words, it was a matter of retuning his body. And again, Brian was special. He was a professional who, he, he knew all this innately. It just had to be pointed out uh, and coached. So, you know, he's the biggest proponent now of uh, interval walks, as are many top athletes around the world who are bodybuilders, power lifters, uh, heavy field competitors, uh, <coughs> excuse me, hammer throwers uh, and the like. Um, and then build a core fitness built into movement patterns. And uh, it was the second year after that he went into the Arnold's. He thought he was going to push it. And when I say to a person, well, this is going to be a two-year process to get your back better. And they'll say, two years? I, I was hoping you were going to wave a wand and it would be two weeks. And I said, no, for that mechanism of injury and the type of damage that he had accumulated and that you, now I'm talking to you, this person in front of me, uh, this is what it's going to take. Other people will make you promises, but you've, you've, been through 10 different rehab cycles with different people and you're still failing. So uh, this is going to be a probably around a two-year process and I can't even make a, pro a promise then. But nonetheless, here is a plan to adapt this back. And uh, if you go to the bottom ribbon of our BackFit Pro website, you will see some top athletes in many different sports who've been successful at having substantial injury, disabling back injury to the point where they can't train. And, you know, athletes, they're paid a lot of money to perform. They're highly motivated, and yet they, they are still uh, unable. But with the right guidance and plan, uh, they can get this adaptation that you're talking about. And find um, recovery. That's, that's yeah. vital, isn't it? And I, I love when you tell stories about uh, Brian in particular because his journey was so such a good example of somebody at peak performance struck down and then built back up to then perform again and break another of his of, of his records but you mentioned about the psychological element for brian in particular and i really liked how you discussed how he decided to have world-class deadlift form on his toothbrushing and it reminds me of a phrase like how you do anything is how you do everything so for somebody like him how he did his brushing of his teeth needed to be world-class in order to alleviate the micro pain that he was getting throughout the day um, and stimulated by that. But more onto the psychological element that was just going off my head at this, at this point. So a lot of patients have been told before that back pain in particular appears to be like in their head or that they're a pain magnifier. What do you wish more people understood about the psychological element of back pain? Well, the first thought is, Maybe they are a pain magnifier. We can't rule that out, but the assessment will show this. Uh, we will replicate their symptoms through provocative testing and probing of the system to create their pain. Um, if things don't add up in the provocative tests, we can say, ah, 
yeah, it might be. And if I say to the person, I mean, there, there are some, I've, I've done this for 40 years. So you, you get good at doing pattern recognition. And I might say to a client, uh, how's your pain right now? And if there's a hesitation, you can see in their face, they're actually searching for their pain. So until you point it out to them, they didn't have pain. It wasn't even in their head. But then they go, oh, I better search for it. Where is it? Oh, yes, there it is. And, and at that point, I, I just have to say, stop. You had to search for your pain. This is a behavior that is counterproductive, and we have to break that now. And we are going to play some psychological games and uh, uh, et cetera to, for you to perceive that pain as something different. So pay attention to the pain triggers. After that, we forget about it. So there is one side of the coin. They may actually be a, a, a pain magnifier or that person who's always searching for their pain. But we then empower them to avoid their pain triggers. And when they do get pain, it's a different psychology now. That pain became the tutor. And, uh, oh, I just got pain when I got out of the chair. Oh, I'm going to su suck up a little bit of air. I'm going to spread my knees apart first. I'm going to pull my hips through. Ah, I just put a successful movement into muscle memory. I left on success. Now I'm going to finish with a story. And I know you live in uh, Scotland. Is the NHS in Scotland or is that just in yeah, England? Yeah, NHS is UK wide. Okay. So we had a police officer uh, in the UK and he had nonspecific back pain, according to his NHS provider. And he saw several and it kept getting worse and worse and worse. He became psychologically corrupted and weak. It was a terrible thing to see a, a good person like a police officer. Man, if you can do that and break them down with PTSD from nonspecific back pain, you know, it, it can happen to anybody. And then he said, I cannot take this anymore. I have to quit. But before that, the NHS said, you have nonspecific back pain. You're going to learn to live with your pain. We're going to give you a pamphlet, how to live with back pain. And this broke him down. This was the last straw. Is this my lot in life? Is this all I have to look forward to? Is to be coached on how to live with pain? When we met with him, we saw very, very quickly that he had very specifically a dynamic disc bulge in his back. Let me just uh, show you what that looks like. Uh, Colin. Yep. Um, if I take this model, and these are built by Dynamic Disc Designs, uh, a fellow named uh, Jerome Fryer, who's been very clever at encapsulating all of these specific injuries. And you'll see I've got many, many models of on different types <laughs> of, of back injury on the shelf, but they're wonderful teaching tools for patients. So if you can see on the back of that disc right there is a red mark. Yep. So the disc is not a ball and socket joint. It's actually <coughs> a fabric. So if I took my jacket here, right by Alico, one of the, the sponsors of BackFit Pro, uh, and I wanted to create delamination in the cloth, I would create stress tracing concentrations back and forth and it. the fibers yep. would delaminate. Some people do this to the fabric of their disc unbeknownst to them. So watch now. 
Inside the disc is an incompressible hydraulic fluid. That is the gel disc. Now, I'm going to bend forward and squeeze the spine. Watch that red mark where the delamination is. So I'm going to bend forward and squeeze, and you see it open up and the gel squish out the back. Yep. Now, hydraulically, I'm pushing the nucleus through the open fissure of delaminated collagen back. But now we're going to do the opposite. We're going to stand up tall and I'm going to squeeze the spine. And you see, as I squeeze it, the whole disc deforms, but yes. nothing is pushed out the back. Well, that's an important strategy point of view because there is the sciatic nerve root laying up on the disc bulge. And then we see why head posture matters. Do you see yeah. as I move my head up and down, it moves that nerve root both into and out of the offense. And we, 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 we figure all this out. We have them sitting on the chair. We have them pull up on the chair. We have them slouch. Oh yeah, there's my, my little toes now starting to go a, a bit numb. And then we change the position of, of their the, head and it dictates everything down the spine. All of it matters. So yep. we get a very precise understanding of their uh, specific pain. That was exactly what the police officer had. Do you know, for the whole time that we were just sitting there talking to him, he sat in his pain. No one had ever shown him this. He has MRIs. It was clear on his MRI. It was clear on anyone's assessment. No one, Colin, had ever assessed this man. He had lost his career. He was in a very dark position, and he was talking suicide to us. We then showed him how to mitigate that. Sit with a lumbar support. Get out of a chair by pulling your hips through. Tying your shoe, put your foot up on the bench. Take your hips to the target. Let your knee go over your toes. Tie your yeah. shoe. That didn't trigger any back pain. He became incredibly angry. You're showing me all of this, and I don't have back pain. How come the NHS and every other clinician I've been to has never tested this? nor have they shown me how to avoid it. I lost my career. Very angry. And he slowly transformed as he learned how robust he could become, and then the transformation took place. I can have a good life. My life was stolen from me because he was told he had nonspecific back pain. It, it it's it's very emotional isn't it yeah it truly is and i think that back pain is such a debilitating pain because it has so much of an impact of so many things that we do day to day and of course as a policeman with an active job and even if he was a desk-based policeman he would probably have been in perpetual pain sitting at a desk as well as you showed with his posture uh yeah the the impact on somebody's life from not being able to move pain-free or live pain-free or at least have strategies to alleviate the pain when it does pop up and sit, or when when there's flare points it's truly empowering and it's vital that more people have the ability to to take action on these things that can limit themselves agreed uh, last question just time-wise for, for you Stu. what are your favorite rehab exercises that you would recommend for people this will surprise you i don't have any and uh, uh, let, let me give a principle to guide that answer a little bit. 
The assessment includes a survey of the demands on that person's life. What is the physical demands, the, the mental demands of their job, of their life, uh, in their relationships with their spouse and kids? What are those demands? Let's write them down and formalize them. And there's, there's a specific approach for doing that. Now, what is your body currently capable of in terms of meeting those demands? That's called capacity. Everyone who comes with pain doesn't have the capacity to meet their demands. Now, with that principle, I can answer your question. We understand their specific demands. We understand the mechanisms of their pain. Now, the best exercise is choosing the exercise tool to give them the capacity to meet the demand in an efficient way that doesn't trigger more pain, that's in tune with the rest of their body the rest of their life, their social milieu, I can go on. So in the broadest sense, that's the guiding principle of how we think about all of that. So what's my favorite exercise? The most efficient way that I can get that person to retune their body to a pain-free state and then add sufficient athleticism to meet those demands. So obviously, someone who sits all day and then wants to go to jujitsu class has very specific demands. Can we always get them to there? No. I've had some fairly well-known people who they've had to make a compromise uh, in their life. But also having said that, I have several UFC active fighters right now where we limit the amount of time they spend rolling on the mat practicing jujitsu. Now, they don't need to practice jujitsu technique every single day. It's in them. They're, they're, they're outstanding practitioners. If they roll every day, they're so disabled, they are now out of their next competition. So we manage the exposure and grade it. Uh, knowing that they will never have the full capacity again. But boy, when they walk into that octagon, they have a lot of capacity that they've built up and they don't fear having acute attack. I mean, you know, you talk to a fighter who's had an acute attack in, in the octagon, it's an awful place to be. Uh, anyway, that, that, that's my answer. So what's my favorite exercise? It depends, but I can tell you this, they need proximal stability. If I'm going to unleash my hips and my shoulders, I need a base of command here to allow me to push efficiently, to run quickly and explode through the hip. Yes. This is that you've got to have proximal stability. So that um, appropriate mobility in the ball and socket joints, uh, appropriate postures. Uh, again, that, uh, until we have that person in front of us, it's hard to make a prescription without diagnosis. I can, I can, I completely agree, Stu. But the fundamental is that there needs to be ability to build capacity for them to do the activities they want to do right. and stand up to it, so that they stay below their tipping point. I, yeah. I, I love that, Stu. There's one thing that's sitting in my head that I need to ask you. You mentioned that you, you, you shouldn't do mobility for you more than two days a week. Some people would maybe say, "Oh, why are you not doing mobility more regularly than that?" but you've also talked about stiffness within this podcast. Can you just bring that together for me so we can make sure people have that answer to the question that there may be 
shouting down to say, oh, Stu said he's only doing mobility two days a week because more would be too much. Why is that the case? Uh, I'd cross the tipping point and sensitize the tissues. Simple. So my body, I can do uh, neck uh, work. Now, before I do neck mobility, I watch this. You can see I'm SCM dominant. I, I can turn those muscles on. But I'm going to touch my teeth lightly together, and I'm going to push my tongue hard to the roof of the mouth. Yeah. I just uh, activated the deep flexors. Now I'm going to grimace down just a little bit. Now I'm going to put my fists under my chin and I'm going to push up. I've eliminated all the shear load in, in, in my neck. Uh, I've, I've got some pretty, I broke C4. So I've got some pretty healthy bone spurs now uh, in my neck. If I pushed like two kilos for 30 seconds tomorrow, I might be in real trouble with my neck. I can't tolerate shear loads uh, on my neck, but I brace my neck first. I get all the patterns going and I add challenge to it now in a mode that doesn't create the trigger. I got a pretty strong neck. I can lift, I can throw things around still. I can use my neck as a lever on the mat if I want. Uh, but if I train mobility more than two days a week now, I will add some sensitivity and then I'm in trouble again. So it's tuning. Not too much, not too little, and I allowed the adaptation to take place across the seven days. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that, Stu, and it, it kind of brings that home nicely for me. For people that want to continue the conversation, Stu, and get access to more of your resources and more of this wonderful knowledge which you've shared with us today, where should they head towards? Right, uh, we're talking to two different people. If they're a clinician, they enter the BackfitPro.com website through the clinicians portal, and they will see the courses that we offer. Uh, there's a 60-hour online course on how to be be become more masterful in assessing specific back pain and creating a plan for that client to rebuild and uh, gain some pain-free athleticism. If you're a person suffering with back pain, then you enter through the Back Pained Persons portal. And uh, we have uh, different podcasts like this. There's some written materials. Uh, we list all of our master clinicians who I've trained around the world in this uh, approach to uh, getting a specific understanding of, of why you're in pain, um, etc. Oh, there's uh, two books that are probably uh, helpful to most. Back Mechanic, I wrote for the lay public. It guides the, the reader through a self-assessment of their back pain and shows them strategies to change painful activities into pain-free. But it's not going to take you to the Olympics. Its purpose was to get you out of pain. Then, if you have aspirations to regain your athleticism, and it might be simply you're 65 and you want to play with your grandchildren, that's a really nice athletic um, goal. Uh, what do you need? And how are you going to get there? Then we shift to the next book, which is Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance. Um, recognizing you have a history and you just can't go and, uh, you know, train balls to the wall, as we like to say, uh, because you will cross the tipping point in a different way than a colleague might. Anyway, 
so there's there's other books uh, there too. There's books for clinicians. Uh, I never thought I'd write for the lay public, but my first books I wrote for for docs, low back disorders, and it's heavily referenced and, and all the rest of it. And the book I wrote with Brian Carroll, uh, Gift of Injury. It's a, it's a really inspirational story where a world champion and and the first page starts out like this. Brian wrote it. He's just come out of his second surgical consult with the surgeon offering him no hope. He pulls a Glock automatic, semi-automatic handgun out of his glove box. He lives in Florida. We don't have those things here in Canada. At least the good people don't. But uh, in Florida, you're allowed to carry these things. And it's on his lap. And he's looking down at this, asking, who is Brian Carroll? Brian Carroll's a world champion powerlifter, and he's been told now that's all gone. And he's looking at this, and thank goodness he put it back, and uh, he heard about this professor in Canada, and and that was the beginning of the story. And uh, it ends up with him squatting 1,306 pounds, I believe. And a new world record. All-time world record, yeah. That was, uh, uh, he came to see me in 2013. That was, I think it was in 2020 or 2021. So it took uh, another seven years or so. But it's the story of his professionalism. And by the way, once he got out of pain and uh, we showed him some basics on retuning his body, I'm not going to coach Brian Carroll on how to uh, get there. I, uh, I uh, have coaches around the world. If, if you're a baseball player and if we're lucky and we can get you out of pain, I'm going to send you to a fabulous baseball coach to get you ready to play again. If it's East Coast, it's Eric Cressy. If it's West Coast, it's Kelly Sturrett. If you want to play American football, I'll try and get you out of pain and I'm going to send you to Joe DeFranco. If you're powerless, I'm going to to send you to uh, Brian Carroll. So I I have these clinicians around the world who, and again, people don't realize that. I don't do it all. I give a little bit of a thought on the front end. I try and wind down their pain. But then I have a cadre of outstanding people who understand all these principles yeah the niche, the niche expertise in the other areas exactly, yeah, exactly yeah. That. I, I don't have that niche expertise uh, if you want to get back in the octagon i'll get you out of pain if i can if it's possible but uh, i also know who to send you to after that to get you i i i love it Stu. i love it soon that allows you to get back to fixing the main thing which is the back pain and then they can go and specialize in niche down uh, exactly yeah exactly spot on Stu. i've absolutely loved this conversation i'm sure the listeners have as well all of the resources that you flagged us there will be linked in the show notes and i'll be back to speak to you all again everyone very very